this is Justin Ford for From the Front Line. Tonight we are dealing with the rapidly escalating conflict in Sudan. In the studio with me is Dr. Peter Hammond, the founder of Frontline Fellowship, who has been involved in serving persecuted Christians for over 40 years in 38 countries. Dr. Hammond, please set the scene for today's episode by describing Sudan's geographical position in Africa and, and also by providing an overview of what is unfolding in Sudan. Well, Sudan is the third largest country in Africa. It used to be the largest, but of course there was a secession, which we happily had a lot to do with, and South Sudan's now broken away, so that's a third of the country broke away. So it's now the third largest country in Africa. It's located in North Africa, specifically Northeast Africa. It's bordered by Egypt to the north, the Red Sea to the northeast, Eritrea and Ethiopia to the east, South Sudan, of course, to the south, Central African Republic to the southwest, and Chad to the west, Libya to the northwest. Its capital and largest city with about 4 million population is Khartoum. So the fighting began to erupt on the 15th of April, Saturday, the 15th of April in the morning, in the capital city of Sudan, Khartoum. And these two powerful rival military factions and the international backers have started to battle for control of the strategic country and its resources and its future. The sudden slide to violence is between the Sudanese army and a paramilitary group called the Rapid Support Forces, or RSF. And the result is it stranded thousands of foreigners, diplomats, aid workers in the country, and the United Kingdom, United States, France, Germany, Italy, Greece, Egypt, India, Saudi Arabia, and the Gulf states have been amongst those who've closed the embassies and raced to evacuate the nationals with all kinds of drama and helicopters racing in to get them out and naval ships coming up to Port Sudan to try and evacuate the foreigners, convoys transporting thousands of uh, foreigners across the desert to get to the Red Sea port that they could be evacuated. Uh, so this is quite a disaster and uh, drama. There's a lot of tension, a lot of stress and uh, panic, which makes you think if, if the um, embassies are panicking, what do they know that we don't know? So it would seem they don't just think this is some short little flare-up, it's like this is a total catastrophe because when embassies close down and evacuate all their staff and try and get all the nationals out of the country, it means they only foresee a long-term disaster and and immediate threat to their personnel. So this wouldn't be happening if it wasn't that they knew that the situation is about to erupt into a real full-scale war. And what impact is this having on the ordinary people of Sudan? Well, I've got a few statistics. Um, the World Health Organization says so far officially 450 people have been reported killed and more than 4,000 wounded in the conflict. You can be sure it's a lot more than that because if that's what they know about officially, there's got to be more because communications is breaking down. There's a complete breakdown of uh, cell phones, for example. You might recall when they had these uprisings and coups before, there was a lot of citizens broadcasting live on, on, for example, the marketplace massacre and things like that. But right now, the cell phones are all dead. It seems the internet's failed. Uh, it's either been deliberate to stop information or just a failure of electricity and so on. The United Nations says 75,000 people have been displaced. In other words, have, are, have lost their homes following this outbreak of, of fighting. So Khartoum, with a 4 million population, is suffering widespread outages of electricity, shortages of food, shortages of water, and of course now internet blackout. 20,000 Sudanese have fled to Chad. Now Chad is the kind of place people normally flee from, so it's got to be bad if you're fleeing to a country like Chad. Uh, 
4,000 South Sudanese um, who are part of the 1.1 million refugees hosted by Sudan from neighboring countries have been forced to return home. So that means refugees have fled from wars in Ethiopia or Chad or Libya and Central African Republic and fled to Sudan are now fleeing back to their home country. So that shows you it's pretty bad if, if the refugees are fleeing your country back to countries that they thought was bad enough they fled from. According to the United Nations High Commission for Refugees, UNHCR, um, as of Wednesday, the number of 3.7 million internally displaced people is rapidly increasing now. Internally displaced means refugees, but they're still staying within the country. So they've lost their homes, they've moved away from the villages, they're not in the area, but they're in informal settlements within the same country. 3.7 million internally displaced people right now. And they've just added another 75,000 to those since this fighting began, which is just a few days ago. Well, there's been a 72-hour ceasefire declared to allow for the evacuation of foreigners. They're speaking about um, sanctuary avenues, and negotiations are underway to try and extend its duration. And it's during that time they're trying to flee. But the British families caught up in the fighting had initially accused the British government of abandoning them, despite assurances from Prime Minister Rishi Sunak and the Foreign Office that talks were underway to bring them home. Well, when you hear politicians talking about talks, it doesn't sound like concrete action to us. So no wonder they were panicked. Um, Alicia Kearns, chairman of the Commons Foreign Affairs Committee, told the BBC Radio 4's Today programme the number of British people hoping to be evacuated could total 3,000 to 4,000 plus. Remember, Sudan used to be a British protectorate, and so there'd be a lot of British people working there for many reasons, economic, social, and so on, not to mention missionaries. And not that missionaries are allowed in northern Sudan, but they might be there under another guise, such as helping with some aid. And those living on the ground, according to the chairman of the Commons Foreign Affairs Committee, is they're living in abject fear. They've got little water and food left. In some cases, they've been reduced to killing and eating their pets because they're afraid they're going to starve. I mean, that's the kind of dramatic report given by Alicia Cairns. Um, during the truce, British, Britain was able to airlift 536 citizens to safety, and the British Foreign Secretary, James Gleavely, has urged all British nationals in the country who might be hesitant or weighing up options make their way to Wadi Sidna, where there are planes and capacity in place to get the people out. So... Basically, the British Foreign Secretary is saying, get out now, all of you, nobody should stay behind, um, and this is your last chance if you want to get out. We've got some planes waiting at this um, wadi, that's some kind of oasis where they have some aircraft and they can evacuate them. So there's no more come to Khartoum Airport or something like that. They're out of Khartoum. Now you've got to make your way out to a particular place where they've got a further evacuation. So it would seem... Britain, Saudi Arabia, India, America, they're all, they're all panicking. All of our citizens have to come out, and none of them want one citizen left behind. And so the people are being ordered to leave. That's extremely dire. What, what are the tensions or fault lines in Sudan or within its ruling class that have resulted in this conflict? Right, well, you'll recall Sudan was an Islamic dictatorship on the National Islamic Front government under Omar al-Bashir, who was a dictator who seized power in a coup in 1989. And for 30 years, he ruled an Islamic Sharia law type state, waging genocide against Christians, 
uh, especially the Christians in New Mountains and engaging in genocidal type actions even against Muslims in Darfur and against Muslims and Christians in the Blue Nile. So it was a pretty disastrous mess um, for 30 years. And uh, thankfully, uh, that came to a ceasefire in 2005 and most of these wars stopped. And we've been astounded to see a peace in Nuba Mountain since uh, 2017 from the time that Donald Trump became president of America and he gave them a deal of um, you want trade and to be taken off terrorist watch list, we want cessation of hostilities. No more bombings, no more ground offences. And uh, in fact, Omar al-Bashir's government adhered to that from 2017. And our mission was astounded to suddenly find peaceful conditions in the Nuba Mountains of Sudan, which had been an island of Christianity and the of Islam, bombed incessantly, much worse than South Sudan for, for something like uh, 40 years. And so to suddenly have even Nuba Mountains in peace where schools are being rebuilt, hospitals getting built, missions are able to go in and, and uh, build everything from schools, hospitals to water points and wells and boreholes. So uh, we benefited from a few years of peace in New Mountains, and I'm afraid we were all hoping that the peace had come and the war was over. Uh, so um, amazingly, in 2019, there was a popular uprising from the very people who are now fighting one another, the Sudan army and the rapid support for forces. They got together and they overthrew Omar al-Bashir's dictatorship and there was a very popular uprising. People in the streets were absolutely ecstatic and thrilled, hugging the army that had been oppressing them for years, thinking this is all over. And uh, Omar al-Bashir went on trial for um, genocide, corruption, all the rest. And The Hague wants him for International Court of Justice on trial for war crimes and atrocities and genocide, amongst other things. But now we've heard that in the fighting, uh, Omar al-Bashir's escaped as as has a lot of his other supporters in prison. So somehow in the confusion, uh, the, this dictator's gotten out of prison, which makes you suspicious about the motives behind the whole thing. Um, so that's a disaster. Whether he'll be re-caught again or not remains to be seen. But it seems that there's been a general prison break. Somebody opened the gates and it looks like all the prisoners fled. And that includes Omar al-Bashir, who should have been handed over to the Hague a long time ago anyway. So right now... The people doing the fighting are the allies, uneasy allies, who work together to overthrow Omar al-Bashir. And uh, that's the army of Sudan and the rapid support forces, which is basically a militia. It's a private army. And so basically on the fourth anniversary of the 2019 overthrow of this dictator Omar al-Bashir and the popular uprising that transformed Sudan from a brutal Islamist dictatorship to a country talking about freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of conscience – and that actually ended things like um, chopping people's heads off and chopping of hands and feet and uh, flogging women for not wearing the veil or something like that. So they abolished all that. They even abolished execution for apostasy. Anyone who converted from Islam to Christianity, for example, was under death penalty under Omar al-Bashir. So the, the army and uh, the rapid support forces in their uh, alliance with the civilian population in this transitional government had gotten rid of all these bad things and were talking about really a new future of freedom and prosperity and all that uh, productivity. Uh, but the problem was on the fourth anniversary of the 2019 overthrow of this dictatorship, uh, the army and the rapid support for forces were required to hand over power. 
and the plan where uh, the RSF was to be integrated into regular armed forces and the armed forces were to be formally placed under civilian oversight. And it seems that on the anniversary, April, when these things had to take place, the military thought better of it and uh, have done some kind of coup which has left both sides blaming the other for provoking the violence. We're not sure who started this latest conflict, but evidently neither side wants to adhere to the requirement to hand over power. Because the question is, who's going to be the civilian controller of the army? And who's subservient to is the rapid support forces, which are 100,000 people? Are they to be under the army? Is the army to be under them? That there's, uh, there's obviously concern for security and safety because they might get prosecuted themselves for things that they did while in power. So there wasn't an assurance of those things. And so what you're seeing is the protagonist in this power struggle, General Abdel Fattah al-Burhan, he's the leader of the army, and he's been the leader of Sudan's ruling council since 2019. And then his deputy on the council, the RSF leader, Rapid Support Forces leader, General Mohamed Hamdan Dagailo. He's often known as Hemeti, and uh, they are the two generals in, who've been the leader and the deputy of the council, the ruling council for the last four years, and now they're at war with one another. And uh, it would seem that as the transition developed, Hemeti, or Dagelo of the militia, has aligned himself with the civilian party's former coalition called the Forces for Freedom and Change, or FFC. Now, the Forces for Freedom and Change have shared power with the military, and uh, that was since overthrowing Omar al-Bashir, but in 2021 there was a coup where the military basically ousted the civilians and regained full military control, and that, of course, was not a good sign, but that was two years ago. So now this is another break. Now it's a break between the two different military factions. So it seems Hemeti is trying to transform himself into a statesman and he's seeking more of an alliance with the civilian population and being more populist, whereas the army seems to be more aligned with the Islamist-leaning loyalists of Bashir and the jihad veterans who had been involved in the war for decades against the Christians in the south and against Muslim dissidents in um, Darfur, for that matter. So at this stage, it would seem that um, those pro-army rebel factions that benefited from the 2020 peace deal uh, and those who used to be loyal to Bashir, like jihadists and those who want Sharia law, uh, those don't want a transition to civilian rule. So it would seem that those are the factions that have lined up. It's not exactly clear who's on whose side at the moment because plainly there are international backers behind them, but... Both these factions have been getting a lot of aid from America and a lot of aid from Russia, and we're not too sure who's loyal to who at this moment. Yeah, because if uh, this Degelo character has 100,000 soldiers, that requires some serious funding. It does indeed. Of course, he does seem to have control of the area of the country that's very mineral-rich, so he's had control of the gold in particular, and then there's oil control. So um, they have ways of enriching themselves from the natural riches of the country, and that's probably where they've done some of their funding from. But there's also indication that huge amounts of American money has been going into this militia too, from groups that are questionable, 
groups that have been involved in the wars in Ukraine and so on. And so they've been getting money and weapons from outside. And both sides have been getting money and weapons from both Russia and America. So it's not too clear who's fallen on which side just yet. But it could be that the militia are the ones getting American support right now to start a war because the military signed an agreement just recently with Russia to open up a naval port on the Red Sea. And so it might well be that uh, in order to sabotage that, uh, the U.S. has thrown their weight behind the militia so that they can disrupt this plan for Russia getting a port on the Red Sea. What's that? Before we delve deeper into the geopolitical aspect, um, what's at stake for the neighbors and the people of Sudan? Well, the 2019 popular uprising had raised great hopes that Sudan its population, which is 46 million people, were emerging from decades of Islamic dictatorship and oppressive Sharia law and internal conflict and civil war and economic isolation. Remember, they were, of course, sanctioned under Bashir. So this renewed, rapidly escalating conflict could not only destroy all these hopes, but destabilize the whole region, which has been volatile anyway. I mean, remember, Sudan's bordering the Sahel, part of Sahara Desert, the Red Sea, and the Horn of Africa, all of which have been very volatile regions in the best of times. We've had lots of wars in Eritrea, Ethiopia, Somalia as well, um, not to mention between Egypt and Israel in the past. Uh, Chad's had its own wars, Central African Republic too. Congo's had hordes of wars. South Sudan's been going through its own war of independence and civil war since. So it's an unstable area in the best of times. And so conflict in Sudan itself is going to spill over the borders and it's going to upset others. But what we're more concerned about at this moment is that it seems that there's big competition for influence in the region and the, not just the strategic region being a sea route through the Red Sea, but also the minerals. Remember, Sudan is rich in oil, gold, a whole lot of other minerals too. So all this could be playing into competition in a new kind of Cold War between Russia and the United States, that we could be seeing a proxy war breaking out here between um, those who are beholden to America and those who are beholden to Russia. And so uh, this is the problem. And if that is the case, it's going to entangle the neighboring countries very quickly. Yeah. Can you elaborate more on the geopolitical context? Um, not only are America and Russia potentially involved, but neighboring countries in the Arab world? It's true. So the Western powers, including America and Britain, were behind a transitional government and supporting the democratic elections following the overthrow of Bashir. Well, they suspended their financial support after the coup in 2021. And then they backed a plan for a new transition towards civilian government, which seems to have um, sparked this latest conflict. Then you get the energy-rich powers like Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. They've sought to shape events in Sudan because they are seeing this transition away from Bashir's Islamicist rule as a way to roll back the Islamicist influence, you know, jihad incorporates and so on, and to bolster what they call stability in the region. I'm not too sure what they mean by stability, but maybe that's like absence of an alternative opinion, eradication, extermination of opposition, whatever that means. So the Gulf states, which are all oil-rich, have pursued investments in sectors like agriculture, and Sudan holds vast potential and ports on the Red Coast Sea, of course, the Red Sea Coast. 
Russia, on the other hand, has been trying to establish a naval base on the Red Sea, while several United Arab Emirates companies are signing up to invest, with one UAE consortium inking a preliminary deal to build and operate a port. Another UAE-based airline is agreeing with a Sudanese partner to create a low-cost carrier based in Khartoum, a new airline. Uh, so General Bahrain and Hamidi have developed close ties with Saudi Arabia, and both of them sent their troops to participate with the Saudi Arabians in their war in Yemen. So there's a big connection with the war in Yemen, and Saudi Arabia has been backing both sides. And Hebeti struck up a relationship with other foreign powers, including United Arab Emirates and with Russia. Egypt itself has been ruled by military general President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi, who overthrew the Muslim Brotherhood predecessor, who was a real Islamist jihadist, who was wanting war with neighboring countries and to eradicate all Christians in Egypt. So uh, General Sisi did a very good job, al-Sisi, he, in stopping the Muslim Brotherhood's terrorism and bring stability to Egypt. Now, he's got deep ties to Burhan and the army, and recently he promoted a parallel track of negotiation through the parties with stronger links to the army, and uh, he doesn't seem to be as close to um, what the army is doing, so he seems to be more of an ally to the military as under General Burhan and therefore against the militia. What could what could happen next? How are the sides posturing and who can they draw on for support? Well, the international parties who've just been evacuating all their citizens and embassies have called for a ceasefire and a return to dialogue. But there's very little sign of compromise from the warring parties who seem now absolutely determined to fight, which could be because they've broken down in their trust for one another, but could also be that they're just being financed and sponsored by uh, different international backers to take those stands. It's There are people from Sudan saying this is a proxy war uh, and this is a distraction. Now, the army has branded the RSF as a rebel force and demanded its dissolution, and Hebertes called Bohan a criminal and has blamed him for bringing destruction on the country. And again, it's hard to know who's to blame because both of them are blaming one another. Now, the Sudan army obviously has superior resources because they've got the air force. But the Rapid Support Forces has expanded into a formidable force with 100,000 men deployed not just across Khartoum and neighboring cities as well as other regions, and they don't seem to lack vehicles. They all seem to have four-wheel drive vehicles with 12,7 or 50 cal machine guns on the backs of them. And... Uh, they seem to have no shortage of, of rockets as well. And this raises the perspective of a protracted conflict on top of the long-running economic crisis and existing large-scale humanitarian needs. So it's not enough to have had a, a war that's kind of divided the country viciously over these last decades. Now it's like they want a new war, just when we thought the days of war for Sudan was over and peace was at hand. But the Rapid Support Forces has very strong tribal support in the western regions of Tafur. It emerged from the militias that fought alongside the government to crush the rebels in that brutal war from 2003 on in Darfur, which got a lot of media attention. So RSF's got a lot of support in the West and many tribal groups that support them. But of course, the government forces, the Sudan army, they have the Air Force and they've got a lot of international support. So where this is going is not too clear. 
Yeah, the, the two belligerents in this conflict will be unfamiliar to most people or most listeners. What can you tell us about them? So the Rapid Support Force are the preeminent paramilitary group in Sudan. We talk about them as militia, but they, like a professional, well-paid army um, with a lot of good equipment and uh, very well funded, whether it's from their gold uh, diggings or whatever it's from, they they are not lacking in good equipment. And they seem highly motivated. Their leader, Dagelo, enjoyed a very rapid rise to power now. During Sudan's Darfur conflict in the early 2000s, Dagelo was the leader of Sudan's notorious Janjaweed forces, who were implicated in a lot of human rights violations and atrocities. An international outcry saw Bashir, al-Bashir, the dictator of Sudan, formalized the group into paramilitary forces known as Border Intelligence Units, Units or BIUs. In 2007, its troops became part of the country's intelligence services, and in 2013, al-Bashir, the dictator, created the Rapid Support Forces as a paramilitary group overseen by him, led by Tegelo, almost like a parallel military. But Tegelo turned against Bashir in 2019, but not before his forces had opened fire on an anti-Bashir pro-democracy demonstration in Khartoum, killing at least 118 people. He was later appointed deputy of the Transitional Sovereign Council that ruled Sudan in partnership with civilians. So according to Sudanese and regional diplomatic sources, Russia's mercenary group Wagner has involved itself in the conflict by boosting the RSF's missile supplies. And according to these sources, the surface-to-air missiles have significantly improved RSF's paramilitary forces under Tegelo. The CNN claims that satellite imagery supports these claims. I mean, that's probably been given to them by the CIA uh, for their own reasons to support a certain narrative, but that shows an unusual uptick in activity on Wagner bases in bordering Libya, where Wagner-backed rogue general Khalifa Haftar controls large swathes of land. So this bold stuff support comes amidst deepening ties between Moscow and Sudan's military leadership. And this is what makes people suspect that um, America's beyond, because who has access to satellite imagery? And why would they give it to CNN? It's obviously got to be uh, the American government is wanting to have people know about this in order to justify what's coming next, which is American support for um, this uh, militia in order to uh, fight against the government, which was considering giving um, naval port facility to Russia on the Red Sea. So Barham is essentially Sudan's leader. Uh, General Barham uh, was... Inspector General of the Army when al-Bashir was overthrown. His career has run almost parallel course to Degelo's, so there's more similarities between them than differences. He also rose to prominence in the 2000s for his role in the horrible conflict in Darfur, and both men came into contact there. And both Degelo and al-Burhan cemented their rise to power by carrying favor with the Gulf states, powerhouses, Saudi Arabia, UAE, and so on. They both commanded separate battalions of Sudanese forces, and they were they were sent to serve with Saudi-led coalition forces in Yemen. So they have fought like mercenaries to support the Saudi Arabian uh, war going on in Yemen, which is a mess in its own right. But now they find themselves locked in a power struggle against one another. 
several observers are saying this is actually a proxy war. I even got a, a video sent from someone in Sudan last night that that's what this Sudanese man was saying. This is like a, a revival of the Cold War where America and Russia use, use Africans in their proxy wars. And uh, not only that, but uh, saw that there's a American program that, um, that Kim Everson had a CIA operative who's been on, um, who's served in the CIA for 26 years saying, this is obviously a CIA operation. And the man there said, American embassy has got more staff in Khartoum than they have in Kiev in Ukraine. And Kiev in Ukraine is one of the biggest operations. Said they've got about 70 agents in uh, just Khartoum, in the American embassy in Khartoum, showing the high priority that America is putting on Sudan and he said these people there almost all have links with the CIA for good reason. There's a lot of minerals in the country. It's oil-rich country. It's strategic in terms of the Red Sea and so on. It's positioned north eastern uh, Africa. So uh, plainly, uh, they, according to this chap, it seems that there's a um, proxy war starting here between America and Russia. You've already alluded to it, Dr. Hammond, but uh, now that you've made us all sit up by talking about uh, the Wagner outfit and potential um, geopolitical interests and uh, proxy war, what exactly? Why are they so? Why would these great powers be interested in in um, Sudan? Well, first and foremost, um, there's a July 2022 investigation finding that Sudan's military leaders have granted Russia access to their gold riches in exchange for military and political support. So, first of all, the West would be interested in gold, but they're also interested in seeing that Russia doesn't get benefit of that. So, um, that's one thing. The other thing is, the Galo's forces were very key recipients of Russian training and weaponry, and Sudan's military leader, Burhan, is believed to have been backed by Russia before the international pressure forced him to publicly disavow the presence of the Russian mercenary group Wagner in Sudan. So both sides have been supported by Russia and both sides have been supported by America in the past too. Sudan is geographically in a very strategic region. They border Egypt and Libya in North Africa, Ethiopia and Eritrea in the Horn of Africa, in the East African nation of South Sudan, and Central Africa's Chad and the Central African Republic. So it's very strategically located. Sudan is the site where the Blue and the White Nile rivers meet and where they merge to form the main Nile. So the Blue and the White Nile rivers both meet actually at what is Khartoum. Khartoum is built just at that junction between the two Niles meeting up there. And uh, now Sudan is home to 60% of the Nile River Basin, one of the biggest and most important rivers in the world. Safe management of the Nile's water is critical for stability of the region. The northern neighbour, Egypt, is 90% dependent on Nile River for its water supply. Ethiopia to the east is looking to double the country's electricity generation through construction of the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam. Now, water that you dam up that you need for hydroelectric power is one thing, but that's now meaning less water is travelling down Nile for Egypt, which Egypt needs for survival. So that's conflicting interest right there. And that's been a bone of contention. And Ethiopia began filling the dam in 2020 to 2021 without any agreement with Egypt. And Egypt has protested Ethiopia's planned third filling of the dam 
to the UN Security Council. That's how serious it is. Um, there's speculation that there'll be a war between Egypt and Ethiopia just over the use of the Nile River. Egypt cannot survive without the Nile. And so too much damming up of water in Ethiopia can kill Egypt, literally. And Egypt has warned they will fight if if the Nile River is interfered with like that. So uh, you can imagine um, Sudan uh, also controls a large amount of the Nile, 60% of it, and therefore they can also do something there that could threaten Egypt and make Egypt very unhappy. And Egypt has said they will fight if, if any country threatens their, their water supply. Now, Sudan's got a strategic location on the Red Sea, which is an essential body of water for people passing from the Mediterranean through the Suez Canal and then to get to the Indian Ocean and to Asia. And 10% of the world's sea traffic passes through the Suez Canal and the Red Sea, connecting Asian and European markets. So that's strategic trade-wise. And then Sudan has immense mineral resources. The nation is Africa's third largest producer of gold. It's got major oil reserves and 80% of the world's gum Arabic, which is and of components of food additives, paint and cosmetics. As a result of the strategic and economic importance, Sudan's attracted competing international partners, such as the Gulf oil states Saudi Arabia and United Arab Emirates, and they saw the oust of al-Bashir, who had been dictated for 30 years, as a chance to stabilize the region, and they've invested in everything from agricultural projects to Red Sea ports. Sudan is a major investment focus for Saudi Arabia and United Arab Emirates. Dr. Ahmed, you've had a close connection with Sudan and South Sudan. Do you think this conflict will spill over into South Sudan and, and do you think it'll have any impact on the Christians in the Nuba Mountains? Inevitably, yes, it must. So uh, the Nuba Mountains has benefited from the peace treaties and the um, ending of the war campaigns from Sudan, uh, which was negotiated by President Trump, which led to unprecedented freedom and peace for our mission teams to distribute hundreds of thousands of Bibles and supply hundreds of Christian schools with textbooks and Bibles and um, to see advance in medicine and medical teams have gone up there, planted so many important clinics, uh, built wells and boreholes, which have improved and saved the lives of many people. So all of that's at risk. Because if any kind of Islamicists, such as uh, old al-Bashir veterans and jihadists, gain control in the Sudan government, they will start killing Christians as they've done before, bombing Christians in new mountains. And so we could see a return to anti-Christian persecution, bearing in mind that any kind of expansionist revivalist, revival of Islamicists in this governor's land will lead to more war with South Sudan, which has a lot of oil itself. So you can see this can easily spill over the region. And for that matter, any kind of problems with Ethiopia and the, war, the water supply to Egypt, that could easily spill over. You could see the war in Yemen spilling over easily because Sudan has been involved in a war on Saudi Arabia's side. Um, you've, you've got Chad, Saudi Arabia and Congo, uh, where I could see those countries getting involved in any kind of destabilizing going on in Sudan. First of all, their refugees who had gone to Sudan for sanctuary are coming back, which is going to destabilize those countries too. This is going to have a ripple effect. It's inevitable that if Sudan falls in the hand of any kind of radical element, it's going to mean renewed war in Nub Mountains, which will directly affect the people we've been investing in for decades.
Mm, yeah, this sounds like a catastrophe in the making. Um, is there anything that Christians in the West can do? Well, yes, I, I think, um, first of all, obviously praying, getting uh, people informed on what's going on and praying. We've put on our Frontline website, www.frontlinemissionessay.org, an article with some pictures and details and links on this. Um, so if you want to inform other people of what's going on, guide them to the frontlinemissionessay.org website. And uh, if you want to learn more about the conflict I've written extensively on the history of Sudan and the war that's been waging in Sudan right up to independence of South Sudan in Faith Under Fine Sudan book, which has gone through three editions and the third edition is now three times size the original. And so Faith Under Fine Sudan, there's the recent book I produced on our 40th anniversary, Frontline Behind Enemy Lines for Christ, gives a lot more of the background details and how South Sudan became independent and what was done to mobilize the prayer and pressure necessary to end the jihadist campaign against the Christians in Noob Mountains. So those books, which are also available as e-books or prints-on-demands, you can read more about them on christianlibertybooks.co.za, Faith Under Fine Sudan and Frontline Behind Enemy Lines for Christ. There's also the Sudan videos that were made that you can also get from the same location. I think if people can be informed what's going on, why it's going on, and what the Christians have gone through, not just in recent decades but generations, uh, will obviously be important help. It's important that we help the Christians in Noob Mountains. There are good groups doing excellent work there. And, uh, for example, Doctors for Life going in regularly in order to do eye clinics and helping the people medically. Um, there's different projects you can see on Gifts and Go, helping the people in Noob Mountains, getting audio Bibles into the hands of people who have lost their sight through shrapnel and war damage, for example. These are some of the projects we're involved in. There's some important ministries doing a lot of key work throughout Sudan. Uh, the Nubian Mountains has been our main focus. So that's part of it. But I think also some pressure needs to be brought to bear on the political forces who are interfering. There's no doubt that the U.S. government is uh, in some way involved in this. Whether good or bad remains to be seen. But just from a positive point of view, I had uh, this radio program I listened to last night. This was on Kim Everson's show, um, a man who'd worked in the CIA for years and knew the area quite well. When he was asked about this, he said the American government's involvement is is not constructive. And so the question was asked, well, what could they do that would help? And uh, the CIA man said, well, stop providing weapons and funding to the warring parties would be an excellent start. But he said, this war is being driven with external backers pouring in the money, the weapons. You know, wars cost a lot of money, um, fuel for the vehicles, weapons, ammunition, artillery shells. There's a lot of these things. This is being fueled by the outside. And just as America and NATO have poured in billions of dollars into the war in Ukraine, which has made the war much more intense, led to more people being killed, dragging the war out longer. So if people continue to pour in aid into the fighting forces on each side in this conflict, then the result will be more lives lost and more destruction of property and greater danger of the spilling over and affecting other countries and regions. So obviously just encouraging the US government to get out of this and stop interfering. Stop funding the warring parties, which they plainly have been doing. And there's a lot of evidence of that that, that would help. For, for example, that same uh, Newman woman who had um, engineered the coup, the, the one who is the Under Secretary of State for uh, the State Department, uh, the uh, 
ja, Newland, ja, this, this Newland, she recently went to Sudan. And she's the one who started the war going in Ukraine. And so this Undersecretary of State for the State Department, uh, Newland, she's uh, definitely been uh, messing around again in Sudan. And there's this inordinately large bloated U.S. Embassy staff, which is apparently mostly um, TIA assets. Um, in in uh, Khartoum, you kind of wonder, what are they doing there? And uh, it would be very nice if America would mind their own business and deal with their own country and they've got enough problems back home and stop interfering in other countries, that would really help. So that's some of what I've heard from friends on the ground in Sudan. It would be just so nice if they just kept out of it or at least stopped funding and arming the belligerents who are causing this chaos and crisis right now. Hmm. Dr. Hammond, thank you very much for your forthright and insightful behind-the-news look at what's happening in uh, Sudan. Um, in closing, um, we should meditate on 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 1-2. to two. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified, just as it is with you, and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for not all have faith. Thank you very much for joining us for From the Frontline. God bless and good night. <laughs>